0: Thank you for joining us today. Family Day is just around the corner. And we want to thank each and every one of you for being part of our true crime family. Family Day is a holiday that isn't recognized everywhere, but our province gets to celebrate it. And we think it should be recognized everywhere. Yeah, family should be celebrated.
1: Mm-hmm. And this case that I've been researching for a while came to mind when thinking about Family Day. The twisted love that was expressed in this family isn't one that you would want to exemplify. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most disturbing serial murder cases in British history, a case that was so horrific that journalists were petitioned not to report all the details. Ooh. I think you'll know this one, Christy. It is the case of Fred and Rose West.
0: Oh my goodness. Yes, I do know this one. And yes, they are horrible dirtbags. They are. The amount of pain that these two people inflicted
1: on others is heartbreaking and disturbing. This case does deserve a trigger warning. We will be discussing the sexual abuse and torture of children and young women today. And I've got a lot of notes, so it might take us a while to get through them all. Like always, though, we will keep it to one episode. If you need to take a break, please do so. This is definitely a case that I could not stop researching. I found it so perplexing how family life can just continue in the midst of such awful abuse and outright horror. There have been numerous questionable studies done on primates about the bonds between parents and offspring, but the results are very telling and transferable to humans about the need for a primary caregiver regardless of the quality of care that is provided. In one experiment done by Harry Harlow, researchers separated young chimpanzees from their mothers and replaced them with man-made surrogates. The surrogates ranged from soft and cuddly to absolute monstrous creations that ejected barbed spikes or whose bodies could be programmed to reach freezing temperatures. Once a bond had been created with the surrogate, the infant would continue to desperately cling to it even when spikes jabbed into them or temperatures dropped below what the baby could endure. It would rarely matter what abuse was inflicted as long as it was intermixed with some care. The infant would continue to cling to the surrogate. If forced to leave the surrogate, the infant would repeatedly return to its supposed mother.
0: Is this the same case, I remember hearing one, where they had them without any type of caregiver and the chimpanzees actually died? Not the exact same research study, but that was a preliminary study to this one. Fascinating. Mm -hmm.
1: In this study, they reported that some of the surrogates were made to shake and the infants would cling to them. To the point where their own teeth shook out of their bodies. Oh,
0: my goodness. Mm -hmm. It's actually a very horrific experiment if you think about it. Oh, it totally was. Yeah, it was very unethical. But the findings are extremely fascinating. And I think that that has to correlate to us as humans.
1: Oh, it absolutely does. While studying early mental health, one of the fascinating and yet prevalent facts is that despite lack of care and even manipulation or abuse, A child will seek love from their caregiver. The trauma bond that is created can be so strong and it is difficult to understand, not only by those viewing the situation from the outside, but those experiencing it firsthand
0: as well. It's quite heartbreaking to think about, would you hang on to someone that you loved until your teeth shook out? Many do. The
1: manipulation and abuse inflicted by Fred and Rose West is some of the worst I have ever researched but I also found it fascinating to read several books and articles published by their children. The older children of these two dirtbags speak candidly about what it was like to grow up in a home where physical and sexual abuse was the norm and murder was just carried out. Each of the children turned authors shared what it was like to love a monster and to live in the world of conflicting feelings that they had towards their parents. Because to the children, Fred and Rose West were just mom and dad. And they didn't understand that their house was the House of Horrors. It was just what they were used to. Yeah. It was so fascinating to read their points of view after the fact. Oh, I bet. The fact that their house was the House of Horrors would be revealed on February 24th, 1994, when police showed up at 25 Cromwell Street with a warrant to search the property for one of Fred and Rose's children, Heather. Heather was the couple's second child and had been born on October 17, 1970. She had not been seen since 1987, seven years earlier when she was just 16. It was right after she had left school. Rose had told neighbors that she and Heather had had a, quote, terrible row around the time that she had disappeared, and that they believed she had run off. The younger children were told that Heather had had a change of plans and took a job in Devon after all. This all seemed very plausible. Heather had previously told friends that she wanted to run away and live in the forest of Dean, and her siblings knew how heartbroken she had been when she learned that she hadn't received a job she had really wanted. To them, it was great news that the job had actually come through. Over time, Fred and Rose's stories had changed, and the reasons that they gave about Heather not contacting the family were embellished. They claimed that Heather had been a lesbian and refused to come back, And later, they said that she was involved with drugs and couldn't return home. Over the years, Fred and Rose would say that they had contact with Heather, and that she was doing okay. What police were now telling the family that was home that day was that they suspected that Heather hadn't gotten a job, or been a lesbian runaway, or been involved with a drug cartel. In fact, they didn't believe any of the lies that Fred and Rose had told their children, friends, and neighbors about their daughter's disappearance. Police believed that Heather had never left 25 Cromwell Street at all. They believed that her parents had killed her. This was shocking news to the children. They had always known that their family wasn't quite like other children's families as they grew up. But, to most of the outside world, the family did appear like any other family, other than the amount of visitors to the house. The children had friends and attended school, Fred went to work, and Rose stayed home to mind the children and keep the home fires burning. The family moved into 25 Cromwell Street in 1972. At the time, there were only five of them. The house was a drab, three-story brown building that they had originally rented from the city. Eventually, they were able to purchase the property for £7,000. While it wasn't a huge house for a growing family, it was all Fred's meager earnings could afford. Luckily, Fred had always had a knack for construction, and he was a hard worker. He renovated the property's middle floors into bedsits as a means to supplement the family's income. What is a bedsit? Bedsits are like rooms for rent. You were given a bed and you had a little sitting area, but bathroom accommodations were shared.
0: Oh, so kind of like a hostel situation. Yeah, only it was in ah, their house. When you said bedsit, I was imagining more like a bunk bed situation, but now I get what you mean.
1: They were pretty successful at keeping all their rooms full because as landlords, They were much more lax than other places. They didn't have a curfew or rules on friends staying over, and they were pretty lenient with late rent. There was always a steady flow of tenants moving through the bedsits. Now, 22 years later, the family consisted of Fred and Rose and their nine children, only two of which had remained at home. The secrets of the family had started to unravel just a few years before that fateful day in February. In 1992, an investigation of child abuse was brought against Fred and Rose. That year, Tara, the West's fifth child at the age of 14, told a friend about some of the things that her parents were doing to her sister Louise and the other children. According to the children's later recounts, Tara was not reaching out for help. She was merely sharing the intimate details of her life with a close friend. Tara would later say that she was actually spared a lot of the abuse due to the circumstances around her birth, which we'll get into. At the time, Tara hadn't been trying to get her parents into trouble. She had merely been discussing her life with a friend. To the children, the abuse that was going on in their home was not considered out of the norm. In fact, their parents had told them over and over again that it was just their way of making sure that they were raising them right. Fred and Rose had made the abuse seem normal. Something that everyone's families did, if they loved their children. So they didn't even know that they were being abused? No. Because of this narrative, the children believed that the private matters of their home were no different than the private matters that went on in anybody's home. So they wouldn't think twice about talking about it with a friend? No. Oh my goodness, how sad is that? It is so sad to think that it was just so commonplace that they just talked about it. When Tara shared with a friend some of the things that were going on, the friend was horrified and told their parents. On August 4th, the police were involved and by the 6th, a warrant was issued to search Fred and Rose's home for evidence of child abuse. What was found during the search was shocking to even the most seasoned social worker. Piles of bondage and restraint devices Magazines and photographs that catered to those fetishes were found along with videos of bestiality and graphic depictions of child pornography. Police learned that the parents had been operating a prostitution ring out of their home. Fred used his handyman skills to carry out many of the home's renovations over the years to cater to that business. Peepholes were drilled through walls and hooks were placed in ceilings. A separate entrance was made so clients could enter without being seen by anybody else. Sex was just a normal thing that the children were exposed to in their everyday life. It was not a secret that Rose frequently entertained in her bedroom for money. It was a special room built by Fred just for her, complete with a red light that told the children that their mother could not be disturbed during that time.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Along with the room's peepholes, baby monitors were positioned so that Fred could listen in on Rose from anywhere in the house. Not that they actually needed to, according to the past tenants of the home. Apparently, there wasn't much insulation in the walls of the home, and sex noises and screams could often
0: be heard. And not just by those in the house, but by neighbours as well. The neighbours could hear? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, they were not holding back at all. No. Most parents would be mortified to know that their children heard them, let alone... Just going for it and not even caring.
1: Oh, Fred and Rose flaunted their sexuality. Tenants who were at the house long enough to notice the frequent visitors and put two and two together would joke about the entertainment that the West provided. Swinger magazines were often just laying around the house. Some had ads that Rose had placed, and one even featured pictures of her. What? Mm-hmm. Spicy pictures? Yes. Oh, my goodness. She was trying to drum up the clientele. Tenants would report that it was not uncommon for Rose to walk around in lingerie and that she never wore underwear, making tenants uncomfortable with the views that she gave.
0: Oh, oh my goodness. I got to bite my tongue on this one. There was one tenant
1: that told about how they would go down into the laundry room and Rose would come down and chat with them with her leg propped up so that they could see it all.
0: Wow.
1: It was almost as if Rose was trying to gauge each tenant's reaction to see if they would show any interest.
0: Oh, I could see that, especially if they're putting out ads for swingers. Yeah. And he knows that she's entertaining people for money.
1: Oh, yeah. While most were shocked at the openness of Fred and Rose's relationship, most still did not realize the full extent of what was going on in the home. If they had, they would have been horrified.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Three of the eight children that Rose had... Tara, Rosemary Jr., and Lucienne were conceived as a result of Rose's sex work. Fred willingly accepted these children as his own, and it's rumored that he even encouraged some of the conceptions. He took particular enjoyment in the fact that they were of mixed
0: race. Okay, that just answered my question, because I was going to say, how would he know that they weren't his? Did he get a paternity test? But if they're mixed race, then I guess that's a little more obvious.
1: Yeah, it was very clear. And there were some rumors that he had actually tried to inseminate her with particular sperm. What? Yeah, to get a mixed race child. Those were only rumors. I couldn't substantiate those reports.
0: But he obviously got off on her having spicy time with other people.
1: Oh, absolutely. He did. Wow. Originally, Rose was the only one that would entertain clients under the watchful eye of Fred. But as time passed and the clientele grew, some of the lodgers at the home took part in the sex work, and sadly, the couple's young girls were sometimes offered to clients as well. It was not uncommon for them to witness their parents naked and engaged, or for them to watch as Fred would just randomly put his hands up their mother's skirts while she went about the daily household chores. He did this randomly to the girls, too, from a young age, telling them that he was just seeing how they were developing.
0: What a sick pig.
1: He's just gross.
0: Do you think that Fred and Rosemary had a sex addiction? Definitely. It sounds like it. But I mean, that does not excuse what he's doing to his children. But even outside of the children, their behavior, I think, screams that. Oh, yeah. It definitely does. And that's just where I'm always so fascinated how these dirtbags align together like this. How do you get two sex addicts together to have all of these children and create this literal house of horrors? It is mind blowing.
1: It really is. Mm -hmm. During the child abuse investigation being done by Detective Hazel Savage, the couple's oldest child, Anne Marie, was interviewed. Anne Marie was originally born Anna Marie, but chose later in life to go by Anne Marie. So that's how I'm going to refer to her today. And the same goes for Rose. She would go by Rose or Rosemary, but I'm just going to use Rose. Anne Marie had not lived in the house for quite some time when she was interviewed, she had left with her boyfriend at the age of 16 but had confirmed the allegations of child abuse, telling police during her interview that her parents had made her from the age of 13 have sex with men for money. They had even allowed her uncle, Fred's brother, to rape her repeatedly. He was a beastly man that visited the house often and raped several of the girls. May, the couple's third child, was only five the first time he raped her. No way. Mm -hmm. More shocking than their uncle's sexual abuse was Fred and Rose's. They had raped Anne-Marie from the time that she was eight. During the first assault, Rose had held her down as Fred climbed on top of her, declaring that it was his duty as a father to break in his daughter's. Rose explained to her, quote, Everybody does it to every girl. It's a father's job. Don't worry and don't say anything to anybody. A statement that clearly shows that Rose and Fred knew what they were doing was wrong. Afterwards, Rose had told anne about how lucky she was to have parents that loved her enough to teach her, Ugh. and it would be neglectful if they didn't do these things. It was common knowledge in the house that once puberty was reached, it was Fred's right and duty to rape his children. Steve, the couple's oldest son, was told that he would have to have sex with his mother as well.
0: This is even before puberty.
1: Mm-hmm. He's not even waiting for puberty. No. The abuse went on for years and became more appalling. Anne-Marie was strapped down over her father's lunch hours so that he could rape her, and Rose made her wear a strap-on vibrator around the house while doing household chores. During these times, she was forced to wear a miniskirt so that the strap-on device was visible for all the other children. She would later say that she had it the worst out of all the children, and was often the target for her parents. She would say that she was strapped to furniture in front of the others while her father raped her. A visual example for
0: her younger siblings. Probably. So then they would think this is just common when it became their turn. Mm-hmm. And maybe they would fight less. Right. When Louise, the couple's
1: sixth child, was 13, Fred raped and sodomized her with a bottle and partially strangled her. What? hmm When the children were examined by medical professionals, there was evidence of physical and or sexual abuse on all of them. The investigation resulted in the five youngest West children, Tara, Louise, Barry, Rosemary Jr., and Lucianne, being removed from the home and placed at Cowell Manor in Sheltonham. So that's not all of the children. Where did the other ones go? Well, at the time, the three older children had moved out of the house, but still had contact with their parents, with the exception of Heather. okay. So that accounts for all nine then. That's right. During this ordeal, it sounded like the children were upset about the removal from their parents, and Tara and Louise both felt guilty about causing the investigation. Tara for saying something, and Louise for having been raped. Oh. It's so backwards. It was Fred and Rose that were actually the ones to blame, but like so many children that face abuse, they blamed only themselves. Well,
0: it goes back to that experiment that you told us about, about how even if you're getting punctured with little spikes or subjected to freezing temperatures... That's what you're going to cling to because that's what you know and love. It's so sad, but so true. Oh, even the fact that they felt so guilty makes me just want to punch these dirtbags that much more. Yeah.
1: The level of their manipulation is astounding. Rose fell into a depression after the removal of her children and had attempted suicide with an overdose of medication. The older children, minus Heather, came to be with their mother while Fred was in custody. And would later tell stories about how despondent their mother was sitting on the couch, repeatedly watching the children's movie Bambi and overeating. She was like a child that needed care. While Rose could have been distraught over losing her children, I have a suspicion that maybe her behavior had another purpose. Because on June 7, 1993, when Fred faced charges of three counts of rape and sodomy, and Rose faced similar charges of assisting in rape, none of the children would testify against their parents. Anne-Marie completely denied her first statement made to the police, and Tara's friend also chose not to speak up. I think Rose's behavior, along with their fear of repercussions, manipulated the children into not testifying. It was a pattern that became very evident in all of the children's recounts about how their mother, while subjecting them to abuse, actually made them feel like they were the ones to blame, and that she was the one that needed to be considered or protected.
0: Oh... There's a special place in hell for people like that. Sorry, I had to say it. It's true. It's just so despicable. Yeah, to take their tender little feelings and twist them and manipulate them to make her seem like the victim. And this is all your fault. Look at what you're doing to me. All I can do is cry and watch Bambi and eat snickerdoodles. Well, that was often the case with a lot of their abuse, what she would tell them. Oh, so they're also getting this emotional and psychological abuse as well. Clearly. Absolutely. Fred and Rose were fined 50
1: pounds and were allowed to return to their home. The children were not, though. There was enough evidence to deem them unfit parents, which Rose didn't seem to be overly upset about and dismissed talking about the whole situation or the younger children once she got back home.
0: The only thing that Rose cares about is herself, and this is evident by this happening. Oh, I think so. Sadly, sexual abuse was just one of the things that the children
1: were forced to endure prior to the younger children being taken into care, family life at 25 Cromwell Street had always been filled with abuse. Both Heather and Steve, the couple's fourth child and oldest son, had at one point run away from home. All the others had at least thought about it. Steve and Heather each came home later, and for returning, they were viciously beat for it. Rose was the one that would inflict the physical beatings. She could fly into a rage at any time. A supposed slight would lead to a vicious beating of any one of the children. The beatings were severe, irrational, and most often done for Rose's own gratification. The beatings would purposely take place in front of the other children so lessons could be learned by all. Rose was someone that wanted to be feared and obeyed. On one occasion, Stephen was mopping the floor and Rose knocked over the cleaning bowl. She picked up the heavy bowl and hit Steve over the head with it then repeatedly kicked him in the head and chest as she shouted, You did that on purpose, you little swine. Oh my goodness. Another time, he was tied to the toilet and strapped for over 30 minutes for something he didn't even do. Once, Rose became furious about missing a kitchen utensil, and she grabbed a knife that she had been using to cut a slab of meat and began repeatedly inflicting knife wounds on May's chest until her ribcage was covered in blood. While May screamed, Steve and Heather stood by helplessly sobbing. They were too terrified to try and intervene. Steve once was questioned at school about ligature marks around his neck. He made up a story about becoming entangled in a rope and falling out of a tree. The truth was that Rose had strangled the child to unconsciousness. Anne-Marie said, Rose would have made a wonderful concentration camp guard. Nothing would have pleased her more than to send many to their deaths. Wow. If having a mother like Rose wasn't bad enough, they still had their father to contend with. Fred did nothing to protect his children against their mother's rage. He was too caught up in his own perversions. He was preoccupied with the sexual nature of animals and people, and would often talk about the most disturbing things in front of his children. His obsession with these things would lead to the most sickening types of sexual abuse, encouraged and helped by Rose.
0: Well, and I was just going to say, Rose having the upper hand violently over the children would play to serve him as well. Because she was helping him with this, so he probably wanted the kids afraid of her, so that she would help him get his perversion on. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, there's no words. No.
1: Between 1971 and 1992, the West children were admitted to the casualty units of local hospitals 31 times. The injuries were always explained as accidents, like Anne-Marie's vaginal injury being due to riding a chopper bicycle.
0: What? Mm-hmm.
1: Reports were never made to social services, not even in 1979 when she was taken to the hospital for an atopic pregnancy and found to have an STD at the age of 15. They just blamed it on her
0: like a wayward child. Right. And I'm sorry, who injures their vaginal canal Yeah, by riding a bike? It seems really suspicious now,
1: but at the time, many missed the warning signs, probably because Fred and Rose, like many other abusive parents, had become very good at hiding their true natures when needed. Fred was a smooth talker and an avid storyteller that could think up a lie very quickly and sell it with conviction. Even if others had seen the warning signs, they were quickly dismissed. Very few could actually guess what was really going on because their minds just didn't go there. No, you wouldn't want to believe it. No. So while today it all seems very bizarre and wrong, to the West children, it was just part of their everyday life, and they just learned to survive amongst it all. They found ways to try and protect themselves from their parents. Heather, May, and Stephen were all very close in age, so the three of them decided that if their father asked either of the two girls to be alone in a room with him, they would only do so if at least one of the other members of the trio was there to prevent either of the girls from being raped. In addition, both girls also developed a routine where they would only take a shower and change into new clothes when their father was out of the house or when their sister could stand guard by the door.
0: Oh, Melissa, that is so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like we can just go and have a shower or a bath anytime we think of it, not having to worry about when you're going to time it so that you won't be raped. Yeah. The things that these children went through are so horrific. And it doesn't sound like he would even care if someone else was in the room while he was doing it.
1: No, Fred wouldn't care. But the other two could run distractions on him.
0: Mm, Got
1: it. So it wasn't like they were physically stopping him from raping the girls. But they would like, oh, dad, can you come and do this? Like they got very good at finding ways to distract their dad. Unfortunately, they couldn't protect each other all the time from the people that they called mom and dad. And that's who Fred and Rose were to them. Fred was the father that built them a house to keep them warm and work to provide for them. Rose was the mother that they watched kindly tend to babies and would make delicious treats for them to eat. The dysfunctional relationship and confusing feelings that were felt between the children and their parents is hard to capture. The beatings were intermixed with their family vacations. The sexual abuse was intertwined with the happy memories captured in family videos filled with laughter and typical family interactions. To the children this was just how life was, and they were raised to believe that family was the most important thing and should be protected as a unit. When Emory ran away from home following a beating she received from Rose, she still maintained a relationship with her parents, sending them cards and calling on them. The beating had been received shortly after returning home from the hospital, where she had been treated for an atopic pregnancy, a pregnancy caused by her father raping her. But still she sent them. Father's Day cards and Mother's Day cards. She still loved them as her parents. Mm -hmm. The children's skewed perception was in large part due to the stories and excuses that their parents had told them and the manipulation that was inflicted upon them. They were repeatedly told that the abuse was because they were loved and that it was Fred's job as a father to rape his daughters. It was Rose's job to discipline and oversee the sexual abuse because it was a parent's job to ensure that their children were prepared for their adult lives. Unknown to the children at the time, the skewed views of Fred and Rose had been planted in their own childhoods. It wasn't until they were adults, long after the police visited that day, that the children started to understand who their parents really were. They were monsters. Yeah, that's an understatement. Mm -hmm. Their father, Frederick Walter West, had been born on September 29, 1941, in Muchmarkle in Hertfordshire Village in England, to Walter Stephen West and Daisy Hannah Hill. His family were historically hardworking farmers from that area. Much of what is thought to be known about Fred's childhood came from himself during his interviews with police. Fred was a known storyteller as well as a pathological liar and loved to shock people to get attention, so it's uncertain which parts he made up and which are true, but I'll do my best to separate the claims from the known. He was raised as the oldest surviving child of his parents with six siblings. While the whole family was described as being close, with Fred respecting his father, he and his mother Daisy were very close. It was no secret that Fred was her favorite child. Fred would later make claims that both his parents practiced incest with their children, that his father had sex with all of his daughters, and that his own first sexual experience was with his mother at the age of 12. Fred would also make claims that his father practiced and encouraged bestiality and that everything he ever did was inspired by his childhood. These claims were all denied by Fred's brother, Doug. There's no concrete evidence either way. They could be true, and one family member just doesn't want to admit what went on, or they could all be the wild claims of a man trying to get attention. And maybe also justify his actions. Exactly. Creating something to blame his own behavior on. Fred struggled in school academically. He was remembered by classmates as being unkept, dim, unmotivated, and frequently in trouble. Daisy would frequently intervene at school when her precious son would get into trouble, blaming his behavior on others. Daisy's intervention would result in Fred being teased as being a mama's boy. As a teen, he was barely literate, but he had a talent for woodworking and art. When he was 15 years old, he dropped out of school in December of 1956 and began working as a labourer at Moorcourt Farm. At the time, people described the young Fred as stubborn and strong-willed, but not particularly violent. Despite his country accent and dishevelled appearance, Fred had no trouble picking up the ladies in his youth, according to his brothers. But according to the women in his past, the relationships wouldn't last long because Fred, while a smooth talker, was all about himself and his own gratification.
0: Yeah, big surprise there. Mm-hmm. And he's not a looker either. No, but apparently he could smooth
1: talk his way through a lot of stuff. So he was charismatic. Mm-hmm. At the age of 17, in November of 1958, Fred was in a serious motorcycle accident that left him in a coma for a week.
0: Why did to stay in a coma?
1: <laughs> a lot of people would have been saved. There were reports that it was a collision between Fred's motorcycle and a girl on a bicycle. But the accident would never fully be explained. According to the family, Fred's helmet was cracked into two pieces, and he broke his arm, his leg, and suffered severe head trauma. He was unconscious for a whole week. Hmm. Fred walked with a limp for a long time after his accident, and his face was permanently marked with a crooked nose
0: and scars. So do you think that his head trauma had something to do with how he turned out? Because we know that that can happen with murderers. Well, after the accident, he did become increasingly
1: violent, impulsive, and lacked emotional control, according to his family. All of those things would indicate damage to his frontal lobe. There are no formal reports of brain damage, but it is very suspicious of that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. Mm -hmm. Not to give him any kind of excuses, but maybe that added to his dirtbaggery. Yeah, it's highly suspicious. There were also reports that he had a plate put into
1: his brain as well. Oh, okay. So then there would have been damage. Mm-hmm. Not long after the accident, while at Ledbury Youth Club, he suffered another head injury. Fred followed a girl out onto a fire escape and put his hands up the girl's skirt uninvited. Oh. She retaliated by pushing him down the fire escape.
0: Good. hmm
1: He fell and hit his head against the wall so hard that again he was knocked unconscious for 24 hours. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is called just comeuppance. Mm-hmm. But it seems like he just had no impulse control after his first accident. Yeah. Because he wasn't like that beforehand? They didn't say that he was, no. Okay. In June 1961, 19-year-old Fred's sexual inhibitions were demonstrated again when he impregnated a 13-year-old. Oh. There are differing reports about who this young woman was. Some reported it to be a friend of the family. Others reported it to be Fred's younger sister, Kitty.
0: No way. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And through some deep digging, I strongly believe that it was Kitty. Statements made to the media by the physician in the 1961 trial, Kitty's husband, and extended relatives made statements much later in life that I feel confirm this. Police records show that at the time, Fred seemed not to appreciate the seriousness of impregnating his 13-year-old sister, telling police, quote, Well, doesn't everybody do it? Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Because Kitty refused to testify, and it was his first offense, and his lawyers used the fact that he suffered from epileptic fits as a defense, Fred managed to avoid jail time. The avoidance of jail time, however, did not avoid the problems with his family over the incident. Even though his mother had been willing to testify on his behalf, she was disgusted by his behavior. Fred would claim later that he had broken his father's often stated rule of, quote, do what you want, just don't get caught doing it."
0: So they weren't so upset that he had impregnated his sister, just that he had gotten caught.
1: Well, it sounded like his mother actually was upset at him, her perfect little boy, but his father was more upset that he was caught.
0: Okay, but he claimed that his first sexual experience was with his mother. Right, but that was his claim.
1: Okay. And his brother said that those things just didn't happen. Yeah, that's conflicting. Mm -hmm. After the incident, Fred was kicked out of his family home. So his mom obviously was upset enough to kick out her favorite
0: son. Okay. So I'm guessing that's probably a lie that she was having sexual experiences with her son.
1: Right. But I'm not as disbelieving about his father's relationship with his daughters. Okay. I just think it explains the cycle of abuse. And so I think that his father's interactions with his daughters taught Fred how to interact with his daughters. And I think his statement to the police about, well, doesn't just everybody do this, like have sex with your sisters, to him it was just a normal thing. And for it to be normal, then he had to have learned it somewhere.
0: Right. So he was in the same position growing up as his kids were now, thinking that this is just how family is. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness this cycle was broken. Yeah.
1: Their children are so strong. Wow. Out on his own, Fred started working construction and started to develop his thievery skills. Although not very well based on his growing reputation with the police, him and a friend got caught stealing a watch and they were fined for it. Fred was also developing his taste in young women and girls. During this time, he met a pretty 16-year-old Catherine Bernadette Costello, nicknamed Rena. Rena had had a difficult childhood and had been in trouble with the police since an early age. By the time she met Fred, even though she was a few years younger than him, she was already an accomplished and experienced thief and sex worker. They became lovers almost immediately, but the affair ended when she went back to her home in Scotland a few months later. The two would meet again when Rena was 18 and pregnant. Fred married her in November of 1962 after bailing her out of an altercation with the police. Fred's family, who had just started to have a relationship with him again, weren't pleased with their 21-year-old son now marrying Rena, especially when just a few months after the marriage, on February 22, 1963, Rena gave birth to a biracial child who was obviously not Fred's. Ooh. But Fred knew it wasn't his. Yeah, Fred knew the whole time. But to cover it up to family members, Rena and Fred made up a story about baby Charmaine being adopted after Rena miscarried their own child. But it is widely believed that she was the child of a bus driver who was rumored to have been Rena's previous pimp. Okay.
0: That sounds more likely because you don't go to the hospital with a miscarriage and come home with a different baby.
1: No. But they kind of made up this story to his family, saying that, oh, well, Rena miscarried. She was so upset over it that we decided to adopt this baby. Regardless of Charmaine's parentage, Fred adopted her as his own and would care for her. And the new couple moved back to Rena's home in Scotland. In Glasgow, Rena gave birth to Fred's first child in July of 1964
0: Anne Marie. So she wasn't Rose's biological child.
1: No, but Rose did spend the majority of her time raising her, and so I've just put her in with all of Fred and Rose's children. Just like the other children that actually weren't Fred's, they were all raised together as siblings. Right. While in Glasgow, Fred worked as an ice cream man, driving a van around the suburbs selling treats to children.
0: Oh, that's not a good job for a guy like him.
1: No, not at all. While Fred was working, though, Rena grew bored at home with two small children and was also put off by Fred's growing physical abuse, so she began an affair with another man named John. During this time, Rena and Fred expanded their circle to include Isa McNeil and 16-year-old Anna McFall. Isa originally went to work as a nanny for Charmaine and Anne-Marie, and Anna as her friend was introduced to the couple. Anna at the time was having a very difficult experience at home. Her boyfriend had recently died in a tragic accident, and her mother was a severe alcoholic who was involved in sex work to fund her addiction.
0: Oh, man. Her
1: brother was in trouble repeatedly with the police. And so she was looking for a way out of her home and was happy to go along with her friend to watch Fred and Rina's children. Reportedly, Rena didn't mind the younger girls hanging around their house. She wasn't much older than the girls and they all became friends. And because the children were being looked after, it freed Fred up to drive her around to her clientele at night. She had continued to support the family through sex work, and he was supportive of her doing this.
0: Which makes sense why he was so okay with Rose doing it as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. He got off on it. Fred's sexual preferences were adventurous on one end of the spectrum and sadistic on the other. Quote-unquote normal sex just wasn't Fred's thing. He had a voracious sexual appetite that Rena struggled to keep pace with. Sexual appetites, affairs, and physical abuse aside, life seemed to be somewhat working for them in Glasgow, until November 4th, 1965, when Fred accidentally ran over a four-year-old boy while backing up his ice cream truck. Oh, The inquiry into the little boy's death found that there was no criminal responsibility, and Fred was cleared of any wrongdoing. But the community was said to have been hostile over the incident, causing the family to move to the Lakeside Caravan Park in Bishop's Cleve, back in England. Others would cite another reason that Fred had fled Glasgow. Rena's piece on the side, John, had confronted Fred about the way he knocked Rena around. The two men had come to blows, and Fred had been on the losing end. Oh. Some believe that Fred fled from Scotland because of the incident. And the women and children followed a short time after that. Interesting. In Gloucestershire, Fred, Rena, their two girls, Anna and Isa stayed in a cramped caravan that allowed no privacy. And Fred got a new job working at a slaughterhouse. It is speculated by some experts that working in the slaughterhouse had a profound effect on Fred. He was fascinated with the job. And there are theories that it would contribute to his future crimes.
0: Oh, yeah, as soon as you said that, I was thinking slaughterhouses and dirtbags just do not mix. No. I immediately thought of Willie Picton. hmm Fred had already had this thing
1: about bestiality in his past. He is fascinated by reproductive organs and sex. And now you throw the slaughterhouse into that and they show him how to dismember animals.
0: Which is okay for... Someone who isn't a dirtbag, but someone like Fred?
1: No. It was just teaching him skills that he would use horrifically later. Life in the caravan contributed to the failing relationship between Fred and Rena. That and Fred had started his own infidelities with younger girls. Fred had a constant string of young women that he would brag about to others. A neighbor at the caravan park said that Fred would brag about performing abortions on these young girls and would show the neighbors photos of the woman's genitals saying that they were his clients and go into depth describing the procedures in detail. The neighbor did go to the police at one point because it was so disturbing, but the police said that there was no evidence other than the photos. (laughs) Other than photographic! Well, it wasn't illegal to be in possession of photos of women's genitals, and so they couldn't really prove that Fred was doing anything wrong. The neighbor would remain tormented throughout his life about what Fred had shared with him. Boasting was something that Fred would continue to do in the future. He would often brag at job sites about the orgies and his sexual conquests. Most would ignore him thinking that it was just another time that Fred was telling his tall tales. The dysfunction in the caravan grew. Rena and Fred constantly argued and fought, and Fred was frequently abusive and demanding refusing to let anyone leave the site fearing the escalation of abuse rena and isa worked out a plan with rena's old flame john that he would come and collect the women and the children while fred was away at work the plan was interrupted by fred unexpectedly returning home early from work apparently tipped off by anna by Anna? Mm -hmm. anna according to fred was completely infatuated with him oh my gosh Because of Fred's controlling and possessive nature, and perhaps because of his hurt pride, he forbade Rena to leave with the girls, threatening Rena that if she were to ever come back, he would kill her. Fred would later tell people that the two had decided that the children should stay with him because Rena would have no way to support them. Rena would return in July of 1966 for a short time and try to get her girls back. During her time back in England, both she and Fred had run-ins with the law and were acquainted with the rookie officer Hazel Savage. During her police interviews, Rena was open about Fred being a sex pervert that was self-absorbed and demanded satisfaction. She would also say that he was unfit to raise their children, that he mistreated them, locking them in their bunk beds with bars for hours at a time, and that he had started to grope Charmaine. For some reason, these reports, and the fact that the girls had, over the course of five years, been surrendered into care, did not raise enough suspicion to even warrant flagging the children's situation for follow-up. Rena would leave a second time back to Scotland without her daughters. By Rena's second departure, Anna was pregnant with Fred's child.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Fred would later claim that Anna McFall was his first and only true love, and would write about her in his journal when he was in prison. This would be after Rose rejected him in the future. Fred would say that he liked the way that Anna doted on him when Rena didn't bother with him or the children, according to him. Sadly, we will only ever know Fred's version of events about this. Sometime in early 1967, being pregnant with his child, Anna tried unsuccessfully to get Fred to divorce Rena and marry her. Instead, Fred responded by killing her and burying her near a trailer park sometime in July. She was almost eight months pregnant at the time. The details of her death are obscure, and during later recounts, Fred would never provide the reason for it. There were lots of theories about why it happened, though. Perhaps she was killed to hide the relationship from Rena, or because she was pressuring him into leaving Rena, Or it could have been an accident during an extreme sexual act or during a fit of rage. The latter two are the ones I think are most likely.
0: Yeah, me too. If she's eight months pregnant you're not all of a sudden at eight months pregnant going to kill someone to hide the fact that they're pregnant. Everybody already knows. Exactly. And
1: it was very apparent that Rena knew that Fred and Anna were carrying on a relationship. She had visited the trailer again. Right. So it only makes sense to me that either it was an accident and he killed her, or in a fit of rage, he killed her. I think it was probably a fit of rage. Mm -hmm. Disturbingly though, not only did he kill Anna and their unborn child, he slowly and methodically dismembered her corpse, removing her fingers, toes, and kneecaps. He buried her alongside the baby, close to the family's
0: farm. Why did he remove her kneecaps?
1: That was just one of his things. He would do it with all of his victims.
0: Right. It's such a random thing. It is,
1: but he got pleasure out of dismembering things. Hmm. And that's where experts think that it was something that he picked up at the slaughterhouse. Right. He actually kept those bones, too. Fred covered up her disappearance by telling people that she had returned to Scotland. She wasn't well known in this new area, and people accepted his stories. Most people didn't even bother actually to ask about where she went.
0: Really? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: It was really sad. Even his family was like, oh, we just never thought to ask. She was there. We knew they were dating. And then next thing she was gone, and we didn't think to ask about where she went. We just assumed.
0: Even though she was eight months pregnant with his child. Mm Mm-hmm. That just makes it even that much more disturbing that he did that to his pregnant girlfriend.
1: Yeah. Left now to care for the two girls on his own, Fred's thievery increased and he frequently changed jobs. And for short periods of time, he would put the girls into care until he could find a new nanny. In 1968, while he was working as a bakery delivery driver, he met the girl who would later become his next wife, Rose Letts. Rosemary Pauline Letts was the fifth of seven children of the electrician William Andrew Letts and Daisy Gwendolyn Fuller. She was born on November nineteen 1953, in Devon, England. Rose's upbringing was less than ideal from the very start. Her mother suffered from very severe depression, and her father was believed to have been a schizophrenic, a condition that was not diagnosed until much later in life. And when it was diagnosed, Bill kept it a secret from everyone. Hmm. It was actually pretty sad to listen to the interview of Daisy when she found old medical reports that said he was schizophrenic. She had no idea. During Daisy's pregnancy with Rose, she received electric shock therapy for her depression. And there has been speculation that this might have caused some brain damage in utero. It is only a speculation. Electric shock therapy is used nowadays for severe depression during pregnancy with a great deal of safety and success. But the methods used today are very different than those used in the 50s. So there's no way to rule out that there was damage.
0: That's kind of shocking that it's still used today. Oh,
1: it's actually quite successful. Wow. But it's only used for very severe cases. Great. It's a last resort treatment. But as that last resort treatment, it's very successful.
0: And it's come a long way, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more safety parameters that we put in now. So we don't know either way if electric shock therapy could have caused damage. There's really no reported cases of it. We do know now that having a primary caregiver with severe depression does affect the development of a child, though, especially in their early years. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Rose's development was also hampered by her father's bizarre behavior and rigid need for unconditional obedience from his wife and children. He was a violent tyrant that would force the children on a whim to do odd chores and demand perfection. He had previously served in the military, and so he demanded that of his children. He would randomly have all of his children dig up the garden, just to go over it again, because they hadn't done it the way he told them to the first time. At other times, he would make his children clean the carpets of their home with their toothbrushes. Ew. Rose's brother Andrew would say of their father, quote, He would inspect us like an army officer. If he was not satisfied, we would do it all over again. We were not allowed to speak or play like normal children. If we were noisy, he would go for us with a belt or a chunk of wood. He would beat you black and blue until Mum got in between us. Then she would get a good hiding. Because of Bill's psychotic episodes and rigid behavior, he didn't make the best employee, which meant he was home a lot to deliver beatings. The jobs he could get were short-lived and low-paying. The family lived in constant poverty. It's no wonder that Daisy had been struggling with depression, and the children were regarded by neighbours as not being like other children. Rose was the most different. As an infant, she would rock repeatedly and so violently in her pram that it would actually move forward. And she would do this for hours on end. She would swing her head and become in an almost hypnotized, semi-conscious state. Oh my goodness. But her mom didn't think anything of this. She just thought she was an extremely well-behaved baby.
0: Yeah, but for a baby to swing back and forth hard enough to move the stroller, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of force. Maybe she's like, look how strong my baby
1: is. Well, she was more like, oh, she's not causing me any trouble. Remember, she's the fifth of seven. That's true. And the mom has depression. And an abusive husband to deal with. Yeah. So these early warning signs that Rose was not quite right were all missed. As she grew up, her mother kept her home longer than the other children because, in the family's words, she was, quote, a bit slow. When she did enter school, she performed poorly and was bullied. At a very young age, Rose was given the nickname Dozy Rosie. She was different from all of the other children, even her siblings.
0: Kids are mean. Mm -hmm.
1: Rose would lash out at the other children that teased her and earned a reputation for being an ill-tempered, aggressive loner. Adults around her couldn't see that she was lashing out because she had no other way to deal with her world. Rose did develop her own coping mechanisms to survive in that world. She learned at a very young age that if she stayed on her father's good side that she would not be beaten as severely as her siblings. Her relationship with her father is one that is speculated on a lot because Rose in her later life would not be very open about it. Her lawyer, Lee Goatley, who would later represent her for more than 12 years, would say that Rose would only ever offer, quote, a sanitized version of her early life, which he attributed to her not being able to deal with what had happened to her at the hands of her father. It is known that an incestuous relationship did develop between the two. And it is believed that Rose would willingly take part because it would placate her father.
0: That's super interesting that she's giving a sanitized version of that. Because she was such a willing participant with her own kids. But her lawyer felt that she just couldn't deal with it herself. Which means she didn't enjoy it. She didn't think it was normal. It traumatized her. So then to knowingly inflict that kind of trauma onto your children makes you an even bigger dirtbag.
1: It does. But there's many aspects of Rose's life that she seems to repeat that trauma on somebody else. Interesting. It is argued by some that knew her that Rose used sex to her advantage turning her father's sexual advances into a way to protect herself. And over time, she became promiscuous and learned how to manipulate others using sex. Dr. David Holmes, a criminal psychologist who studied Rose's psychopathology, intensively argued that from an early age, her father took advantage of Rose because of her low IQ, This meant that she was less likely to tell about what he was doing, and she was easily manipulated into believing his rhetoric about because he had made her, he could do anything he wanted to her. Oh my goodness. So despicable. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, she was a child being molested and abused by a man that should have protected her. Rose, either from a learned coping mechanism, or because deep down she was always a dirtbag, or maybe a little bit of both, she became sexually promiscuous, Walking around the house naked with no thought of privacy, trying to elicit reactions from her father and brothers, and in one report I read, her grandfather.
0: Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. This was the way that she felt you got love, though. Mm
1: -hmm. And that
0: you stopped
1: violent behavior. Right. Groomed by her father, Rose became an outright abuser herself, and would climb into bed with her younger brothers, fondling them. Eventually, this led to Rose and her brother Graham having sex. Rose began to think about others as objects, to be manipulated for her own gain. She continued the
0: cycle of sexual abuse within the family, using her brothers as playthings. Well, she was told she wasn't an object, mm-hmm. right? If I made you, I can do whatever I want. So that's what she was taught.
1: And she also learned that the sexual aggressor was the one that had the power. Right. And so she becomes the sexual aggressor in all of her relationships. Ugh. At the age of 13, Rose's family moved into Bishop's Cleeve in Gloucestershire. As she became a teen, she tried out her sexual prowess on the young teen boys at school. The boys at school wouldn't take her up on her offers, though, because she was moody, chunky, and socially inapt. It was reported that she would just approach neighborhood boys and invite
0: them to touch her private parts. Really? Because that's what her dad did to her. It shows just how affected she was by this abuse. Mm-hmm. Not that we're making any excuses for her at all. No. This is just really sad. It is. With no prospects in her own age group,
1: though, Rose turned to older men. Not shocking, since her father was what she was used to. Older men were also in the position to provide her from protection, if needed, from her father. Early in 1969, Daisy, in an act of bravery, would leave Bill temporarily and move in with her daughter and her husband, taking the younger children with her. Without her father watching her, Rose spent a lot of time out at night because he was quite militant in their discipline, so they didn't have a lot of freedom under his roof. Now that she was without him, she used it to her advantage. Her brother-in-law, Jim Tyler, claimed that Rose carried on with a number of men much older than she was, and that Rose had even tried to seduce him. Oh yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Rose would also later share that she had been raped twice by the age of 15, Once when a man offered her a ride home from a Christmas party, she was reluctant to accept his offer, but did so anyways, and he drove her to a nearby hill and raped her. Rose would later say that she was terrified during this experience, fearing that she was going to be murdered. Not long after that, Rose would say that while waiting at a bus stop, she was approached by a man who started to talk with her. She became wary of him and started to run away, but the man followed and caught her in a nearby park and proceeded to rape her. Once again, Rose said that she was too afraid to tell anyone about what happened. After these incidents, Rose said that she was cautious for a while, but again became lonely and bored, and again started to seek out older men for companionship. She gained the reputation around town as being an infomaniac, and was known to have sex with truck drivers and many older men. And I find it interesting that she termed those two assaults as rape, but she never defined what her father did in the
0: same way. That's true, because I was thinking, no, you've been raped way before that by your father. Exactly.
1: But she just didn't view the relationship that way. Because in her mind, that's just what a father did. Right. And that is evidenced by her decision in mid-1969 to move back to Gloucester to live with her father. According to Rose, her mother had become emotionally distant when they had moved. Not surprising for someone who suffers from major depression. As a result, Rose felt lost and she felt guilty for turning her back on her father. When she summed things up in her head, she felt that her relationship with her father was preferable to the rejection she now felt from her mother. Wow, that says a lot. does. You think about those baby chimpanzees Mm -hmm. and they would rather put up with abuse than be left alone. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. It was while Rose was living with her father and her grandfather that she met Fred West. Fred and Rose met for the first time at a bus station. Striking up a conversation, they discovered both of their mothers were named Daisy. Rose had just turned 15 at the time, and Fred was 27. Rose was initially put off by Fred's appearance and assumed that he was a, quote, tramp. But he won her over with his charm and a few days of persistent advances.
0: Ugh, and he's 27, Mm -hmm. and she's 15. Yes. That's not okay. Well, Fred had developed a like for younger girls. And she has a lust for older men. Yeah.
1: And Fred obtains sympathy by claiming that he and his two daughters were abandoned by his wife. So she's just gone back to her father because she feels guilty over her mother leaving her father. And now she's met this man that's in that same situation. Right. So she'd be totally empathetic towards him. Exactly. Their sexual relationship began soon after they met. She became a frequent visitor at Lakehouse Caravan Park and a willing childminder for Charmaine and Anne-Marie, who she observed were neglected and whom she initially treated with care and affection. Sorry, and by this time, he had already killed Anna. Yes. That's uh, why he doesn't have anybody to care for his children. Right. Rose quit her job at the bread shop within just weeks of their first encounter and became a full-time nanny. Fred would pay her the same amount of money as the bakery had so that neither of her parents would know that she was no longer working there. When Rose finally introduced Fred to her parents, they were not pleased. Fred apparently laid it on really thick, telling lies to make himself appear more prominent, when obviously this was not true. So her parents saw right through him. When Bill found out that the two were having sex, he showed up at the trailer park and threatened Fred.
0: Yeah, that's really gold, when he was already abusing Rose. Well, later he called social services. Oh my goodness.
1: Some experts have suggested that his interest in protecting his daughter was driven more by his own jealousy than concern about his daughter.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: Rose was placed in a home for troubled teens in August of 1969 to protect her from Fred. When she aged out of care at 16, she returned for a short time to her father's house. But when she was found to be pregnant, she moved in with Fred in the caravan. And is this Fred's child? Well, there is some speculation about that. Okay. Fred did accept this child as his, but there are several biographers and researchers that believe that the child might have actually
0: been her father's. Oh, no. But Fred has already taken in his first wife's child, so it doesn't really matter to him who the father is. No, it doesn't. And it really shouldn't in life, but we're just talking about a unique situation here. Because if it is her father's child, that just makes it that much worse. Mm-hmm. Rose gave birth to this child, her first daughter, Heather,
1: on October seventeenth, 1970, just before her 17th birthday. Soon after Heather's birth, the family moved to 25 Midland Road. In late 1970, Fred was in prison for various theft charges and failing to pay fines for previous offenses. This left 17-year-old Rose alone caring for three small children. It didn't take long for her once caring attitude towards the girls to give way and she started to beat them. According to Anne-Marie, who was around seven at the time, Charmaine would often be stoic towards Rose's abuse, refusing to cry or utter a word as Rose tried to inflict pain. She would stand up to Rose and remind her that Rose wasn't her mother and that her real mother would come and take them away. This behavior would always make Rose furious and Anne-Marie would say that a great deal of her anger would then end up being directed towards her because she was the more submissive one. Anne-Marie would later say about Rose that she was, quote, a woman entirely without self-control. When she lost her temper, she became a kind of maniac. Hospital records show that Charmaine was treated for a severe puncture wound to her left ankle on March 28, 1971. The injury later was thought to have been inflicted by Rose purposely, but at the time it was not thought to have been suspicious. Charmaine would later disappear in the summer of that same year. The timing of her disappearance is not exactly known. It was known that Anne-Marie, Charmaine, and baby Heather accompanied Rose to visit Fred in prison on June 15th or 17th. A neighbor, Shirley Giles, believed that Charmaine disappeared before Fred was released from prison on July 24th. She believed this because she had brought her two girls to play with the West's older girls before Fred was released. During the visit, she had asked Rose about Charmaine's absence. Rose had callously told the neighbor, quote, good riddance, she's gone to live with her mother. Mm. It is believed by most that Charmaine was murdered by Rose while Fred was in prison and that he helped her dispose of the body, minus the young girl's fingers, toes and kneecaps, when he was released. It was a secret that he would hold over Rose for 23 years. Oh, that is what I believe. Mm -hmm. There are some that said as soon as he was out of prison, he killed Charmaine. But there was dental evidence revealed later that would say no Charmaine was killed while he was in prison. In August of 1971, when Rena did return for her daughters, Fred felt like he had no other choice but to murder her too. It's believed that he got her drunk, then restrained and sexually assaulted her before strangling her to death in his Ford popular. He then dismembered her body, stuffed it into plastic bags, and buried it close to a group of trees in Letterboxd Field. Again, her body would not be found for another 23 years,
0: allowing Fred and Rose
1: to continue with their lives like nothing had happened. And by
0: him raping her first just shows what a pig he is. Because it wasn't just, oh, I have to kill her so she won't know what happened. Oh, I'm going to have a little fun with her first.
1: Oh, yeah. He is a sadistic rapist, for sure. Oh, disgusting. Fred and Rose continued with Rose's story that Rena had come and collected her daughter. No one thought any differently. The couple would keep up this ruse for years, making up stories about where Charmaine and Rena were and why they had never returned. Nobody questioned why she left Anne-Marie. Well, Anne-Marie did. She recalled in her autobiography, Out of the Shadows, that when she asked her father why her mother had collected Charmaine, but not her, Fred rudely responded, quote, love, she wouldn't want you. You were the wrong shade, referring to Charmaine's darker skin.
0: No way. Mm-hmm. So let's now also give my child an insecurity.
1: Yeah. Rose's mother, Daisy, would later tell reporters that Rose had left Fred once and returned to live at home with her parents with the children. It was early in the couple's relationship. Fred had come to the house to collect her, saying, quote, Come on, Rosie, you know what we've got between us. And she would later make a comment to her parents, saying, quote, You don't know him. There's nothing he wouldn't do, even murder. Oh, that's not a
0: flex, honey.
1: Well, some believe that this statement implies a fear of Fred and a knowledge of what he was capable of doing. But it almost sounds like it excited Rose. And in a twisted way, it was her proof that he would do anything for her.
0: Yeah, it sounded like a brag to me.
1: Mm-hmm. It is always shocking when Chance has two dirtbags meet and form a killing duo. But that is exactly what Fred and Rose have become.
0: It's so true. If one of them had been running late for the bus stop that day, this wouldn't have happened. Or maybe not as drastically.
1: No. And maybe they both would have killed independently because they do do that. But it wouldn't have
0: went to the scale that it does. Yeah, because each of them were encouraging and egging on the other. Exactly. I have that sentence right.
1: Each of their sickening fantasies egged on the other.
0: <laughs> Almost <laughs> we're exactly. That is really funny because it felt weird to me when I said yeah, it. <laughs> but that's
1: exactly what I've written here. <laughs>
0: oh.
1: Taken by themselves, though, they were awful dirtbags, but together they were pure evil. Both were classified as sexual sadists by later psychologists.
0: hundred percent they were. Mm-hmm.
1: On April 29, 1972, six months before the birth of their second biological daughter, May, the two were married at the Gloucester Registry Office. Only Fred's brother, John, attended as a witness.
0: Is that the beast who would later go on to rape their daughters?
1: Yes. Ugh. Fred and John had a special kind of relationship.
0: Air quote special?
1: Yeah. Oh. They would both... Get into some really nasty things together. They were two like-minded brothers. Ew. Fred and Rose were no ordinary couple. As time went on, they brought in their sexual escapades. Rose began to work out of their house as a prostitute, placing advertisements in Swinger magazines seeking well-endowed men to bed her, often for profit, but sometimes for fun. Fred enthusiastically encouraged this behavior, and it's believed that it was actually him that suggested it in the first place.
0: And did he watch through the peepholes that he had made?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Fred was into voyagerism and would often watch her at work through the peepholes for his own pleasure.
0: I wonder how many people are, because this isn't the first time you hear about something like this.
1: Well, we know that usually sexual predators do begin with voyagerism.
0: Right. But this is like in the confinement of a marriage. How many couples get off by watching their significant other engage in sexual relations with somebody else?
1: I think more than you think. Probably. Yeah. The two weren't shy about their behaviors. While living at 25 Midland Street, Rose and Fred answered a babysitter's question about their night out, frankly, by saying that they had been out cruising for young girls, preferably virgins, to have sex with. Ooh, This is what they told their babysitter. At the time, the babysitter, Elizabeth, thought they were joking, just trying to be overtly rude to make her blush. That was Fred's nature. Later, though, when Fred propositioned her, she knew he hadn't been joking. She did turn down their offer, but at another time, she would find herself waking up in their home, unsure of about how she had gotten there or what had happened to her. No way, they drugged her. It does sound like that. Elizabeth would also recall that when the West purchased twenty-five Cromwell Street, that Fred had told her that the property was perfect for them. That he was excited about the cellar, which he felt he could soundproof as a room for Rose to practice her trade, or he could use as a torture chamber. Again, Elizabeth just assumed he was joking.
0: He's telling this to his babysitter.
1: Uh huh. Wow. The knock on the door on twenty-five Cromwell Street by police on February twenty-fourth, nineteen ninety-four would be the catalyst that would reveal the horrors that had been carried out by Fred and Rose. The police had been able to secure the search warrant because of what a foster parent had overheard. She had been disturbed by a so-called joke that the five younger children seemed to have about misbehaving. The children would joke, quote, you better not misbehave because if you do, you're going to end up two down, three across. When the foster parent had questioned them about it, they told her honestly that, quote, Their parents had often threatened them that they would be put under the patio with Heather if they misbehaved.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: This revelation was very disturbing because it was known that Heather had been missing for seven years. The detective that had been involved with the previous child abuse cases, Hazel Savage, had been disturbed by these reports of Heather being missing while she had investigated the child abuse. Savage was familiar with Fred's past because she had had previous run-ins with him. She knew about his petty thievery and his inclination towards BDSM and his temper. She had learned all of these things from Fred's first wife, Rena. Savage had always been curious about Rena and Charmaine's sudden disappearances. Now, another person close to Fred had mysteriously disappeared, so she just couldn't let it go. After confirming that there was no trace of Heather anywhere in England or anywhere else, she tried to convince the police department to look more closely at the Wests. The tippet of information that tipped the scales and allowed the warrant to be issued was the dark joke that the West children shared.
0: Wow. So by saying two down and three across, that's the position in the
1: grave? That's the position of the patio stones. Okay. And even this just makes me marvel because had the foster parent not gone and said, hey, the kids have this really morbid joke that I'm concerned about, they would have never issued the warrant. And none of the digging at 25 Cromwell Street would have ever happened.
0: Well, the only digging that would have happened would have been probably to add to it. Mm -hmm. Good for that foster mom.
1: Yeah. And good for this detective for staying on the case and being suspicious about all the different disappearances. Later, she would do some questionable things with the story. But in this part of the investigation, she was pretty awesome. She was a savage. Yeah. She's laughing at herself. (laughs) A clever like, joke.
0: Will anybody get it? I don't yeah. know. We'll see. Yeah.
1: On the 24th, when police presented the warrant, Fred was called and told that he needed to come home immediately because the police were digging up the garden looking for Heather. Fred took hours to arrive back at the house. And when he did, he told the gathered reporters that he didn't know where Heather was, but that he was just as concerned as everyone else as to her whereabouts and was adamant that he hadn't murdered his daughter. Why wouldn't you just take off? Well, he had the time, there is speculation that he was hiding evidence
0: Oh okay. in these six hours. Makes sense.
1: He told police a similar story to the one that Rose had been telling them all day long, that he and Rose had no idea where Heather was, but he was not worried. Lots of girls disappear, he explained. Quote, they take a different name and go into prostitution. He said she had problems with drugs, and Rose chimed in that Heather was a disagreeable and lazy person and a lesbian to boot. What a dirtbag. Well, it's just such odd behavior for two people that are supposedly concerned.
0: And it just irks me that people would throw that in there as a extra little dig.
1: Well, at the time, it was just not a thing that you talked about.
0: Mm -hmm. So if they add that in there, then that's going to discount the type of person she is. Right. Oh.
1: But Rose herself is bisexual and has sex with men and women. So what a hypocrite. She's just awful. Later that night, after the first efforts of the police failed to find anything and the West family was left alone with a single officer guarding the garden, Fred and Rose spent time alone walking the dogs in the park and talking quietly long into the night. The next morning, when police arrived again to start digging, Fred asked to speak to one of the officers in a cruiser. At 11.15, he confessed to murdering his daughter Heather in a fit of rage and covering up the crime by dismembering her and burying her under the patio. He told police that they hadn't found her yet because they were digging in the wrong section of the garden. Rose was arrested an hour later, but would subsequently be released because Fred said she knew nothing about his daughter's murder. 25 minutes later, his confession changed. This would just be one of the first of many times that Fred would change his story. His confessions are an absolute mess to listen to, and it's difficult to make out what is fact and what is fiction. His traits of being a pathological liar and routinely telling tall tales for attention are very evident in his conversations about his crimes. Later, he would go on to describe the murder in sickening detail, saying that when he was, quote, slapping her for her insolence and grabbing her throat to stop her from laughing at him, he must have grabbed too hard because she turned blue and stopped breathing. He tried to revive her, but he didn't have the training, so he dragged her over to the bathtub and ran cold water over her. He took off her clothes and lifted her out of the bathtub and dried her off. Then he tried to put her in a large garbage bin, but she didn't fit. So it was back to the bathtub where he would have to make her smaller. But first, he strangled her with some tights just to make sure that she was dead. He said, quote, I didn't want to touch her while she was alive. I mean, if I'd have started cutting her leg or throat and she suddenly come alive.
0: Oh, my goodness. He
1: would have been concerned.
0: Yeah, jeez." Mm hmm.
1: So he closed Heather's eyes before he dismembered her. Explaining this, Fred said, quote, If somebody sat there looking at you, you're not going to use a knife on that person, are you?
0: Oh, what, like you have some morals? Mm-hmm. Give me a break. And why didn't you call 911? Horse crap.
1: A lot of what Fred says is horse crap. He cut her into pieces so that, quote, she nicely fit into the garbage bin, where he could keep her until he had a chance to bury her. The next day, he had Steve dig a spot for a pond feature in the garden and later told him that he had changed his mind when the boy returned to see the hole he had dug filled in.
0: So he had his son dig his sister's grave.
1: Yes. Later, he created a barbecue area over the grave of his daughter where the family would gather for
0: meals. That is the most twisted thing ever, Melissa. Roasting hot dogs on the 4th of July while your daughter is literally under your feet. Yep. Yep.
1: Over the course of his confessions, Fred denied that Rose had anything to do with the murder. Uncertainty over the truth of Fred's confessions would remain for years. Even after all the trials were over, there was still doubt about the level of participation of Fred and Rose in the murder. That's because no concrete evidence could be contributed to just Fred or just Rose. Sadly, the only eyewitness was too terrified to come forward. It would take decades to have answers about which parent had killed their daughter. Barry West, the couple's second son, who was seven at the time of Heather's murder, claimed years later that he had seen what happened to his older sister. He told a reporter that, quote, It was about 3 a.m. when I heard Heather come in. I heard my dad shouting, Where have you been? We've been waiting for you. I heard my mom slap her. Then I looked through the crack and saw my dad walk around behind her and put his leg out. Then he grabbed her neck and tripped her over. She went on the floor. I could see her just a few feet away. Then my mom just booted her. She was kicking and kicking her and calling her a slag. And my dad still had her by the throat. Then he tried to get her to do things to him. She refused. I think that's why she ended up dead. 15 minutes later, according to Barry, Rose rubbed her hands together and said, quote, right, let's clean this up. Barry said, I could hear my dad wrapping her in some plastic, and I could see my mom scrubbing the floor with a bucket and a brush. There was some white bubbly stuff, which must have been soap. Mom was telling him to hurry up, and he was asking her to help him. But she said, I can't. I've got to get rid of this before the kids get up. How traumatic for that little boy. It would take him years to come forward because he too was terrified of what would happen to him. Yeah. And the story that their parents told them about, oh, if you misbehave, you'll end up under the patio, just increased
0: that fear and cemented it into him. Oh, it absolutely would have. Mm -hmm. It would be haunting all the days of your life.
1: It was. That's why it took him so long to come forward and actually tell people about what he had seen. Right. Right. There was a rumor that he had told one police officer, but he wasn't believed at the time.
0: So they're like, oh, it's a seven-year-old kid. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. Which is so frustrating when police discount children that way.
1: Right. It would just cement to him just to keep quiet. It didn't make a difference anyway.
0: True. The police aren't going to help. No. And the way that Rose is just acting so nonchalant about it, rubbing her hands together, well, let's get this cleaned up.
1: Well, there's a reason she's acting nonchalant. And it was because by this time, She was pretty practiced at this. Yeah, it's true. And we'll get into all of that. The motive, though, for killing their daughter remains unclear. Some people believe that she was killed during a fit of rage. But there is evidence that Heather, just prior to her death, had confided in a friend about the abuse that she was facing at home. A friend told her parents, who were friends of Fred and Rose. Years later, it would be revealed that some of Fred and Rose's friends shared similar interests. Dave and Pauline Williams were friends of the West who had vacationed with them, and they had swapped childcare back and forth. No. The Williams would be jailed in 2015 for a total of 35 years for abusing 10 children over a period of 15 years while they lived just down the road from 25 Cromwell Street. These are the kind of people that Fred and Rose were hanging around with. They had created a little community around themselves that were okay with the kinds of things that they were doing.
0: Which is so terrifying that there's that many people that were okay with those types of things. Mm -hmm.
1: It's really disturbing to read some postcards that they sent back and forth to each other, where it seems like really coded about child sexual abuse and orgies.
0: I would go to the extreme of kidnapping that child and going to jail for it to get them out of that situation, not laughing about and talking about it together and bragging about what you've done, comparing notes. It's just all very disturbing. Oh my goodness.
1: But there's lots of questions about how they were able to get away with what they did for so long. And this is one of the tactics that they use. They surrounded themselves with similarly minded people.
0: With more dirtbags.
1: Now, that's not saying that Heather's friend's parents had those same interests. I don't believe they did. But they definitely didn't take the apparent story that Heather had shared that seriously. They told Fred and Rose about the things that Heather had said. Instead of the police. Right. So it's possible that Fred and Rose, finding out about Heather's story from their friends and knowing that it was absolutely true, felt that their daughter was a threat that would expose their secret.
0: That sounds likely.
1: Mm -hmm. This, along with lengths of rope and carpet fibers that were found with her body, suggests that she too had been restrained and sexually assaulted prior to her death, leads me to believe that it was probably the latter theory. Absolutely. It wasn't just a spur of the moment rage-filled fit. The next morning on February 26, under Fred's direction, police started to uncover human remains. A human femur was uncovered shortly after 4 p.m., and then another. And then another. Mm. Because there is no way that Heather had three femurs, as crudely pointed out at the scene by one of the investigators, the rest of the yard was torn up. When Fred was questioned about the extra body parts, he admitted that two more people were buried in the yard. But that was only the beginning. On March fourth, he would admit to nine other murders, and later would direct police to dig in four more locations. At twenty five Midland Road, where he had buried Charmaine, at Letterbox and Fingerpost Fields where he had buried Anna and Rena, and six additional bodies were buried at twenty five Cromwell Street. One was next to the kitchen under a renovated bathroom, and five others were in the cellar under concrete that he had poured for a bedroom he would later lock his children into.
0: Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm.
1: Disgustingly, this dirt bag, when he made his confession, couldn't even remember all the names of his victims. As I was thinking about Fred's confessions, and the little chat and nighttime stroll he had spent with Rose, I couldn't help but wonder if the original plan was to cop to just Heather's murder, and keep them away from the other burial sites by telling the police specifically where to dig.
0: Could have been. He wasn't banking on them finding that third femur.
1: That's right. And then when the third femur was found, Fred was like, oh, they're going to dig up the backyard. So I should tell them about the other two that are here. And then when all of the secrets started coming out, that's when he would tell them about the others.
0: Wow. I'm still so shocked that he didn't take off. You had six hours to flee the country. And then you were even allowed to go for a walk in the evening with your wife and they didn't take off. I'm glad that they didn't. But I'm just surprised.
1: But Fred and Rose did have a past history with the judicial system of being let off.
0: That's true. They've gotten away with it for so long, they thought they were invincible.
1: I think so. I think that's why they didn't run when they were given the chance that night.
0: And good thing, or there would have been more victims.
1: Yeah. Initially, Fred covered for Rose. So she was released on bail on February 27th and placed in a safe house with Stephen May, while Fred was formally charged on February 28th with Heather's murder on March 3rd, he was charged with two more, and on March 10th, five more murders. This number would eventually grow to 12. Between March 5th and 8th, nine bodies were found at 25 Cromwell Street. Each grave contained evidence that the victim had been subjected to extreme sexual abuse prior to their death, and each victim had been severely mutilated. They were all missing fingers, toes, and their kneecaps. A buried pile of fingernails suggested that they had all been pulled off as a torture technique. Oh. The fingers, toes, and kneecaps were never found. And some have speculated that the time that Fred took to get home, the day that the police first started digging, that's what he was doing was disposing of his trophies. Right. A distinct pattern emerged from the excavated evidence that almost every girl had been bound and gagged, sexually assaulted, and tortured to death. The skill level of each dismemberment carried out on each successive victim, in addition to the paraphernalia that was discovered in each shallow, cubicle-like grave, suggested that each subsequent victim was likely subjected to greater abuse and torture. One by one, as they dug up the bodies that had been buried for so long, the horrors that had happened in the West Home were revealed. In 1973, 19-year-old Linda Goff was last seen on April 20th. She had been working as a seamstress when she was enticed to come and live at 25 Cromwell Street as a nanny for the Wests. While under their roof, it was rumored that she had begun a sexual relationship with both Fred and Rose and had started servicing clients as well. It is believed that there was a rift in one of the relationships, either with Rose or with Fred, and that Linda was suspended from holes in the basement ceiling as she was tortured because of it. Her jaw had been found completely covered in adhesive and surgical tape, presumably to keep her from screaming. Oh. And this would be a common thing in almost all of the victims, to have their jaws taped shut. And even in some of them, there were tubes inserted into their nostrils, so they knew that they had tried to keep them alive while they tortured them. Wow. Mm -hmm.
0: And this was to keep them quiet so the people that were renting out the rooms wouldn't hear what was going on?
1: Right in the floor above them.
0: Oh my goodness. Yep.
1: It is believed that Linda was strangled or asphyxiated.
0: How terrible for those victims to hear people going about their day upstairs and wanting to scream out for help and not being able to.
1: Oh, it would have been so terrifying.
0: Knowing that the people above you are oblivious to what's happening just a few feet below.
1: So awful. When Linda's mother came to ask about her daughter, Rose told her, like she had told everyone else that Linda had hit one of their children, so she had been asked to seek employment elsewhere. While she told Linda's mother this, Rose was wearing Linda's housecoat and slippers.
0: No way. hmm
1: And her mother recognized this, but in her mum's mind, she thought, oh, her daughter left those things behind.
0: And she was probably almost apologetic or embarrassed that her daughter had supposedly smacked one of their children. Mm-hmm. Just to think how she may have stood there and apologized to her daughter's murderer makes my stomach turn. Yeah.
1: Her body was found buried underneath the renovated bathroom just off the kitchen of the house. On November 10th, 1973, Caroline Cooper was last seen by her boyfriend. They had gone out to the movies and he last saw her waiting for the bus to return to the Pines Children home in Worcester. She never arrived. And this was a common thing among Fred and Rose's victims. Most of them were troubled teens and a little bit transient, so they were harder to track. They were perfect victims for them. Mm-hmm. Most of them were. Carol Ann's dismembered body was found with her jaw wrapped in surgical tape and her arms bound with braided cloth. She had been reported missing, but there was nothing that ever connected her to the West because she had just randomly been picked up at a bus station. A little over a month later, a university student, Lucy Catherine Partington, had gone home to her mother's house to spend the Christmas holiday. On December 27th, she had went to visit her disabled friend and left to catch a bus shortly after 10 p.m. The 21-year-old was believed to have been held and tortured for over a week. Because on January 3rd, 1974, Fred received stitches for a serious laceration to his right hand, believed to have been caused while he was dismembering Lucy's body. Wow. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine what those girls went through if they were held up to a week?
0: No. And just knowing what his perverted sexual appetites were, and how much enjoyment they got out of torture, it would have been nonstop.
1: Yeah, we know what they did to their children that they would allow other people to be witness to. Right. This is stuff that they're hiding away from people. Oh my gosh. And what I find equally as disturbing is how closely these abductions match Rose's own stories of rape. Where they're being picked up and what's happening to them after. That's true. It seems like she's trying to inflict her own suffering on other people. Teresa a gentler, a Swiss national who was hitchhiking to Ireland to see a friend. Fred couldn't even remember Teresa's last name. He only referred to her as the Dutch girl or Tulip. When she hadn't contacted her family, they reached out to Scotland Yard to investigate. Again, though, the West were never suspected because she was just randomly picked up. Right. Fifteen-year-old Shirley Hubbard was a foster child that was attending Droitwich High School and working in a general store in Worcester. On the 14th of November, 1974, she left her workplace and headed home, and this was the last anyone had seen or heard from her. Her remains were found in the cellar with tape covering her entire head and a rubber tube inserted three inches into her nose. Juanita Mott was an 18-year-old that had previously been a lodger at 25 Cromwell Street and had disappeared on the 12th of April. Juanita had left the West home and was now living with a family friend in Newent. Fred would say that he and Rose picked her up while she was hitchhiking along the B-4215. Even though she had lived in their house, Fred couldn't remember her name during his confession. She too was found under the concrete in the cellar. The couple's next victim appeared to be the only victim that did not have a sexual motive behind the murder. Perhaps this is why the timeline had shifted a little bit. Shirley Robinson was a former tenant as well and had engaged in occasional sex with both Fred and Rose for quite some time. During one of these encounters with Fred, Shirley became pregnant and at the time of her disappearance in late May to early June in 1978, she was eight months pregnant. Fred would confess that Shirley saw herself as Rose's replacement and Rose saw otherwise. It was rumored that Fred had wanted to keep Shirley alive because he planned to sell the baby, but (gasps) Rose thought her too much of a threat to their relationship. Shirley's disappearance from the home required a little more explanation because she had lived there for longer, but that didn't faze Fred and Rose. They simply used a similar excuse to the one they had given with Charmaine's disappearance, that Shirley had relocated back to West Germany to be with her father. Her body and the baby boy that she carried were found buried in the garden with no evidence of the restraint devices, but both were dismembered.
0: Oh, even the baby. hmm I find it interesting that Rose was all of a sudden jealous over Shirley and not with the others. So did that mean that she was okay that he was having sex with these girls, but just not to impregnate them?
1: Maybe. Or maybe it was where Rose was at, just in her life. She had just had Tara and was pregnant again with Louise.
0: Okay, so maybe a little bit of competition, Where Mm -hmm. now there's going to be another mom in the house and I'm the mother of this house. Yeah.
1: Okay. I think so. It would be over a year, though, before Fred and Rose would commit their final known murder with a clear sexual motive on August 5th, 1979. Allison Chambers, a 16-year-old who had escaped a nearby children's home to work as the West live in nanny in the middle of 1979, met her end at 25 Cromwell Street. Allison had actually moved into the West home with a friend, Sharon Compton who said that the girls were promised a place where they would be accepted for once in their lives, rather than face rejection. It was appealing to both of them, but within a couple of weeks, the couple had started to force the girls into BDSM sexual practices. Oh. Sharon left the home for seeing danger. Allison had not. She was buried in the back garden as well, with a leather belt wrapped around her head and jaw. Fred and Rose posted a letter to her parents that Allison had wrote prior to her death from a North Hampshire postbox to avoid suspicion. With all nine bodies found that Fred said were there in the backyard, police turned their attention to the other burial sites that he had pointed them towards. Rena's dismembered body was found in Letterboxd Field in Muchmarkle. When Charmaine's remains were found, a pathologist used a photo taken prior to her death to estimate when she had died, using the growth that had occurred in her two front teeth. The timeline did match when Fred was in prison. After finding Anna McFall and her baby at Fingerpost Fields, excavation for further victims was stopped on June 7th because of the cost of the investigation. It was estimated that the investigation up to this point had cost over a £100,000. So what? So it wasn't that they didn't think there might be more victims. They just literally were like, we've already spent too much money. This is the concrete evidence we have to go on. We're stopping.
0: What? Mm-hmm. That's terrible. Every victim deserves justice and to be found. That's horrible. It is shocking. But
1: at the time, those are the ones that Fred had told them where to find. And so they were happy to spend the money to look for those victims. But there are a lot more probable victims of Fred and Rose. But because there isn't concrete evidence of where to find them, the police won't spend the time digging. Okay. After Anna's remains were found, Fred's demeanor changed and he gradually began to shift more and more of the blame onto Rose during his confessions.
0: (laughs) He starts out defending her and then throws her under the bus. Yep.
1: Good. At one point, he blamed her completely for everything, saying everything had been her idea. Yeah, right. He claimed that the only murder that hadn't been Rose was Anna's because that one had been performed by Rena.
0: Oh, of course it had. Mm Mm-hmm. What a slime ball, honestly. And the only reason he can say that is because Rose wasn't around when Anna was murdered.
1: That's right. Based on Fred's new confessions, Rose was arrested on April 20th and was charged with five murders to begin with, but this would eventually grow to ten. She was adamant about her innocence, and during the surveillance that had been done in all three safe houses that she had stayed at during the excavation, the only thing police learned was that she blamed Fred completely for everything that had ever happened to her. Some believe, though, that this was all an act to further manipulate her children, Steve and May, who were staying with her at the time, to elicit their continued support of her and make her out to be the victim to garnish sympathy from them. I don't know if she could have been that twisted to hold up that facade for so long, but some of her children do believe that she purposely did this to turn them against their father and make her seem like the victim.
0: Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. Both of them are just as guilty as the other.
1: It's just so shocking to me how she further tries to manipulate her children. Oh, yeah. As trial proceedings began, Rose maintained the same attitude and spurred Fred's attempts to contact her through lawyers, children, and through letters. At their joint hearing, Fred attempted to console Rose but she avoided his touch. She told police that he made her sick.
0: Yeah, because he got her arrested in her eyes.
1: Yeah. The great partnership in crime was over.
0: And how did he think she was going to react? He literally just said, it's all Rose. She did it all. And then he's like, hi, honey. And she's like, get away from me. And he's shocked.
1: Well, he still believed that they were deeply in love. Oh, After another court appearance that December, where Rose ignored him again, he sent her a letter saying, quote, we will always be in love. You will always be Mrs. West all over the world. That is important to me and to you. Barf. Well, I don't know if this is him trying to be romantic and win her back, or is he threatening her and saying, no matter what you do, you'll always be connected to me. Oh. You'll always be Mrs. West.
0: Maybe. I was taking it more as his undying love for her, but… Maybe. Who knows?
1: It's really hard to tell. At this point, this is when Fred is writing all about Anna in his diary as well. Okay. And Anna's the only one he actually really loved. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he's still trying to get Rose's affections.
0: Well, we know that their relationship is extremely dysfunctional, so who really knows? Very twisted.
1: Fred's behavior became erratic in prison, and he was put on suicide watch at H.M. Prison Brigham. The watch didn't work. Taking advantage of the guard's lunch break on New Year's Day 1995, Fred hung himself using a noose made out of his bedsheets. A drawing of a gravestone was at the bottom of his suicide note that was found in his cell. On the gravestone, it was written, Cherished Memory, Fred West, Rose West. Where there is no shadow, rest in peace. He waits patiently for Rose, his wife.
0: See ya. Sorry, the world's a better place. And trying to be all romantic, is that what he wants on his headstone? Yeah. Did they put it on his headstone? No. Good. Sorry, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but the world is a better place without him in it. All the things he did to all those girls, his daughters, everybody. Yeah, but he took so much
1: information to his grave. That is true. It is believed that there are a lot of secrets that he hadn't revealed yet.
0: Oh, definitely. And it's a cop-out. He then doesn't have to face the consequences of his actions.
1: No. Some people believe that he committed suicide over Rose's rejection of him, but I feel it's more that he was just trying to get out of facing what he had done. In interviews with different people, and while in the company of Janet Leach, Fred's designated appropriate adult, Fred was said to have claimed that there were over 20 women that had been murdered, and that he would reveal one during each year of his imprisonment. Some believe that this was just one of his fabricated stories. Other believe that this time he wasn't lying. There are many suspected victims that will never formally be linked to Fred and Rose West. During the short time that Fred spent in Glasgow, four women fitting Fred's type went missing. In Gloucester, between 1966 and 1975, there were eight abductions where the perpetrator matched Fred's description.
0: And what if 20 was a low number? They say when a doctor asks a patient, how often do you drink? You should usually double that because they're not going to tell the truth. So I'm wondering if he was even being conservative with that number.
1: Well, he took all of that information to his grave. There was one missing 15-year-old, Mary Bassholm, that is largely suspected to have been murdered by Fred. She went missing in January 1968. She was last seen leaving her boyfriend's home carrying a Monopoly set. The pieces of the Monopoly game were later found at a nearby bus stop. To this date, her body has never been found, despite police reopening this case in 2016 and excavating the basement of the former pop-in cafe where she used to work. There are claims from various people that dozens of more bodies were buried on a farm on the outskirts of Berkeley and Gloucestershire, but currently police do not believe that there is enough evidence to justify the expenditure. Hmm. One of the saddest parts in this case, in hindsight, is that a lot of this could have been avoided. Besides the multitudes of neighbors and co workers that had known about the abuses that were going on, so did the police and the judicial system. In late 1972, shortly after moving into 25 Cromwell Street, Fred and Rose convinced Caroline Rains to come and live at their house as a nanny. Rose had apparently been too busy with clients to care for the children all the time. That or the West had come up with a believable story to lure young girls into their home. The same ruse had been Anna's story. And that's how Rose had come to live with Fred as well. Caroline accepted the offer and her parents agreed to the arrangement because the West promised to take good care of their 17-year-old daughter. At first, Caroline was friendly with Rose because they were of similar age. While staying at the West home, Caroline became uncomfortable with their behavior.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm.
1: She said that Rose was tactile and would often touch her saying, quote, Oh, I love your hair and you've got lovely hair or lovely eyes. Of Fred, she said that he, quote, bragged about really strange things as well. Like he told me, if you ever get pregnant, don't worry, because I can do abortions. I've done them before.
0: Gross. That's not something you say to a 17-year-old girl, you creep. He was just off. His fascination
1: with reproduction and sex was insane. Both Fred and Rose attempted to make sexual advances towards Carolyn. She refused them, leaving the house and returning home. According to one of Fred's confessions, the couple made a plan to abduct Carolyn. In another confession, he said that his initial incentive was to determine whether Rose would be willing to at least assist him in abducting. But it had always been his plan to rape
0: and likely murder Carolyn. Ew, because he saw someone he wanted and he didn't get her yet.
1: Right. Uh. By Fred's accounts, Carolyn was their first victim. And he was just trialing Rose out to see if she was twisted enough to go along with his plan. Because with Rose alongside him, women would trust him and get in the vehicles more easily.
0: Yeah, that happens so often with couple killers. Because as a young girl, you inherently would trust a woman more than you would some guy. Even now, as a grown woman, I would.
1: Mm-hmm. You feel a little bit safer. Right. But that wasn't the case. On December 4th, Fred and Rose found Carolyn walking home and offered her a ride apologizing for what had happened with Fred when he propositioned her. Rose sat in the back seat of the car with Carolyn to have a girls' chat while they pretended to drive her home. When Rose started to paw at Carolyn and make advances, Carolyn once again resisted. Fred repeatedly punched her until she was unconscious. Then they bound her, took her to the cellar where Rose led the assault. Throughout the night, she was molested and beaten, smothered and tortured. The next morning, when Rose left the room, Fred raped Carolyn and threatened Carolyn's life if she ever told Rose what he had done. Carolyn would later say that Fred told her, quote, he would bury her body beneath the paving stones of Gloucester. He told her that he had killed hundreds of girls and that she was primarily being brought to the house for Rose's pleasure. That's why Fred didn't want Carolyn to tell Rose that he had raped her, because Carolyn was supposed to be for Rose.
0: But he had to get his fun in too. Mm-hmm. Uh oh.
1: He offered to keep Carolyn alive if she agreed to stay at the house and be their nanny again. Carolyn pretended to agree and waited for them to drop their guards so she could escape. Believing that Carolyn wanted to be their sex slave, Fred and Rose released her from bondage and gave her a list of chores to do. When they drove to the laundromat later that day, Carolyn fled. When she returned home, she told her parents what had happened and her mother immediately contacted the police. There was a hearing on January 12, 1973. What? Fred was 31 and rose a mere 19, and pregnant once again. Carolyn was too terrified to testify, and Fred was able to con the magistrate into believing that she was a willing partner in what had happened. Despite Fred's criminal record, the magistrate did not believe that the West were capable of violence, and he agreed to accept their guilty plea for a lesser sentence of indecent assault, which at the time wasn't even equivalent to rape.
0: What? So this could have all been prevented?
1: Mm-hmm. For pleading guilty, they received a 50-pound fine and were released to torture and murder again.
0: 50-pound fine. Yep. Okay, that just makes me so irate, honestly. This is one of my biggest pet peeves in any case that we cover, is when someone is captured for doing something horrific, and then is just given a little pat on the back and just scurry along and be better. Yeah.
1: Well, what this ordeal taught them? was that future victims could not be left to talk. Right. It was only three months after that that the couple had abducted Linda Goff. Wow. So obviously 50 bucks was worth it for them. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Rose was put on trial on October 3rd, 1995 for the murder of Charmaine, Heather, Shirley Robinson, and the other girls that were buried at 25 Cromwell Street. The impartiality of the trial right from the beginning was questioned. There was a media frenzy for any information about this case at the time. This led to media outlets offering exorbitant amounts for any statements that would give their headlines the edge. They even approached people that would take the witness stand, offering them money. So unethical. Mm -hmm. And it could possibly taint any of the testimony that was given. For sure. After hearings, though, it was determined that the trial could proceed. Throughout it all, Rose showed little emotion, maintaining her innocence blaming everything on Fred. Which is so convenient now that he's dead. Mm -hmm. To prove her guilt, because there was no physical evidence to link her to the crimes, the prosecution relied heavily on similar known behaviors to show that Rose was the aggressor, and not just an unknowing accomplice or a battered woman forced to take part. Carolyn, now going by the last name Owens, bravely took the stand 23 years after her ordeal to testify that Rose had taken part in her abduction and rape. Carolyn said, quote, When I went to the witness box, I could see her up to the left, and all I had in my mind was, I'm going to face her this time, because I felt so guilty about not getting them a prison sentence the first time around. If I had gotten them a prison sentence, probably none of these girls would have died. She can't wear that guilt. No, but she does. She's still one of their victims. It's true. Just in a different way. Yeah. Another victim, known only as Mrs. A, also took the stand, as well as a very conflicted Anne-Marie. The prosecution used Fred's willingness to take the blame on both of them as proof that he was the submissive one in the relationship, and that Rose was the mastermind. And they put Janet Leach on the stand, who testified that Fred had told her that the idea for him to take the fall had been a deal he and Rose had made the first night the police came to the house looking for Heather. She testified that even during the interviews when he was claiming full responsibility, that privately he would tell her that this murder or that one had been one of Rose's mistakes.
0: I'm just not buying it. I think they're both terrible. He had killed Anna before he even met Rose.
1: Right, but the prosecution now is using this statement made by Fred's appropriate adult to say, look, even though he claimed responsibility, he actually didn't do it all.
0: I don't think he did it all. But I don't think it was just all Rose either.
1: Oh, no, not at all. He was just as guilty. In a bold move, Rose took the stand to plead her innocence against her lawyer's advice. It did not go over well. The (laughs) prosecution found it easy to rile her up and make her look like a fool saying the most awful things. She didn't gain any sympathy with the jury. And on November 20th, after seven weeks of trial, the jury found her guilty of 10 counts of murder. She received a life sentence and was told that she would have to serve at least a minimum of 25 years in prison. Later, that sentence was extended to a whole life order. Good. Which means she will never get out. When asked about his client's guilt after the trial, her lawyer said, quote, Would I have found her guilty? Well, possibly. Possibly. Put it this way. I wouldn't lose sleep at night if I was convinced she was innocent. And I do sleep quite well at night.
0: (laughs) It's not saying, uh, yeah, she done it. Yeah. (laughs) Without saying she did it.
1: Rose launched appeals in 1996 and 2000, claiming that new evidence had come forward and that the media interest in the case at the time of the trial had resulted in her receiving an unfair trial. In 1996, the appeal was lost and the second appeal in 2000 was later dropped. After the trial, the West House, which had housed so much horror, was razored to the ground. The remnants were burned after, so that absolutely no trace would remain. Now it is a pleasant walkway through a green space. Since being incarcerated, Rose still managed to make media headlines several times. In January of 2003, it was leaked to the media that she had been in correspondence with the bass player from the rock group Slade, and the two planned to marry. When the engagement was announced, the bass player faced a huge backlash, and the wedding was called off.
0: Yeah, no kidding.
1: Mm-hmm. This wasn't Rose's only romance, though, while incarcerated. According to her lawyer, her first love interest was Myra Hindley.
0: Which just blows my mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Rose was initially taken with how smart she deemed Myra to be. Later... She had told her lawyer that she had to end the relationship because of how manipulative Myra was. Wow, that's saying a lot. Mm -hmm. Later, Rose had to be moved in secret from her pretty cushy setting in HMP Low Newton in Durham, where she had enjoyed an ensuite cell, regular TV, and the company of a pet budgie. It was in 2019 she had to be moved because Joanne Dennehy was moved into that prison. She had previously threatened Rose's life, and so they didn't want to keep the two of them together.
0: Yeah, I remember covering that in Joanne's case, and Rose was not happy that she had to move. Oh, no.
1: Rose was upset over this move because she had built up quite a routine life in Durham. Rose was given supervised baking times to bake sweets for other inmates and had developed a reputation as the prison matriarch, befriending all other inmates. In the new prison, she had to reestablish herself all over again. And this just made her irate.
0: I'm so glad that it happened, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean... Joanne Dennehy is a huge dirtbag herself, but at least Rose had to go from den mother to starting back at scratch.
1: Right. And I just find it so interesting that the only three women ever to be given a whole life sentence in Britain all cross paths.
0: That is true. And Myra Hindley, I don't know if we'll ever cover that case one day, but she's just as terrible. Mm hmm. In 2020, Rose changed
1: her name to Jennifer Jones, something that infuriated other inmates. Rose said the name change was about getting rid of any association with Fred for good. Oh, please.
0: You're a dirtbag no matter your name.
1: Rose is currently in New Hall Jail in Wakefield, West Yorkshire, and still remains silent about her crimes despite many pleas for the truth because she's the only one that knows it. Instead, she continues to insist that she is innocent.
0: And in my opinion, that makes you an even bigger dirtbag when you hold those secrets to your chest for the rest of your life, never giving other families the knowledge of what happened to their children.
1: It is just the biggest dirtbag move. She knows she's not going anywhere. There's nothing to gain from her claiming innocence, and yet she still does it.
0: It makes sense, though, with her type of attitude. She's so selfish, she even changed her name so she wouldn't be associated with these crimes.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Many who were involved with the investigation also suffered because of their interactions with Fred and Rose, which I really hadn't considered before. Janet Leach, the social worker that was appointed as Fred's appropriate adult, collapsed while giving her testimony on the stand, and the trial had to be delayed over a week because she suffered a stroke.
0: Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm.
1: Later, she said she suffered PTSD from being subjected to the information that Fred had shared. She had attended over 40 interviews with Fred and had been traumatized while listening to the most harrowing and horrific details over and over again.
0: Oh, because I'm sure she heard things that nobody else has even heard.
1: She later tried to sue the police for subjecting her to all of that. Really? She was just a social worker that because Fred was considered inept, that he needed another adult present while he was questioned. And so she was just the social worker that was pulled off the street and had to stay with him. Hmm. A guard was encouraged to befriend Rose while she was on suicide watch in Winchester Prison in order to gain information, made similar claims about psychiatric injury.
0: Wow, that's saying a lot. Mm -hmm. Just being around these dirtbags. Oh, I can only even imagine the vibe they would give you. I think just walking into the same room as them would make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. It's unimaginable. But the repercussions of
1: these two dirtbags' actions continue to be felt. Beyond the horror of what the victims suffered, the children that were raised at 25 Cromwell Street faced unimaginable trauma at the hands of their parents. Almost all of the West children have changed their names. Anne-Marie has struggled to come to terms with her past and how she feels about her parents. She continued to visit her father in prison, but testified against Rose, something she said she later felt guilty about. After the trial, she told the press that, quote, people say I'm lucky to have survived, But I wish I had died. I can still taste the fear, still feel the pain. It's like going back to being a child again. She would try to commit suicide twice as she battled with the abuse and her feelings from the past. Oh, that's heartbreaking. She would eventually find a life that made her happy, but it was a long journey for her. What an amazing person. May changed her name and had plastic surgery done to avoid association with her parents. She now has two children and has spent a lot of time in therapy. Mae always believed that her father was guilty, but struggled to come to the same conclusion about her mother. For 10 years, she supported and visited her mother in prison. Through her continued contact, she slowly began to see the side of her mom that her childhood self had hidden. She said she ended contact with her mom after experiencing more of her coercive, controlling behavior, and now believes that her mother was a willing participant in the crimes. Wow. When asked if she thought the killings stopped between Allison and Heather's death, May answered, quote, I don't think he did. I think he stopped
0: using the house. Oh, that never even occurred to me that he'd be doing those things somewhere else. He did work construction, so he had oh, ample
1: opportunity to hide them in other construction sites. Yeah. Steve took quite the opposite view. He stood by his dad, even while admitting that he believed he was guilty. Of his mom, he said, quote, she was the callous, the evil, spiteful, vindictive, manipulative person out of them. Referring to his dad, he said he was just a minion in a way. He just did what she wanted him to do. I'm not saying he didn't get any gratification from it. I'm sure he did. But basically, the torture was driven by her. So I think that she was the driving force in the pair. And I feel that people don't really get that. Stephen, in his late 30s, was imprisoned for having sex with a 14-year-old. The sex was apparently consensual and conducted while Stephen was working as a builder.
0: No, it's not consensual when you're in your 30s and she's 14.
1: Yeah. The relationship was discovered after the child became pregnant and Stephen took her to a clinic for an abortion. His lawyer said of Stephen's behavior, quote, He had one of the most traumatic and distressing childhoods one can imagine, and what happened affected his emotional development. While in prison, Steve sought out treatment and now says that his conviction saved him because he was able to receive the help and to start understanding himself and his past. He says now he is a completely different person. Good. Up until that point, he hadn't even really made the connection to who he was as a person in his behavior and how that connected to his past. Right. And I just find it so interesting that you're seeing that cycle abuse continue through the generations. That's what his grandfather did. That's Mm -hmm. what his father did. And unknowingly, that's what he did too. Right. But thankfully,
0: he was able to recognize it and put a stop to it. But he says that that wouldn't have happened if he
1: hadn't been convicted. Interestingly, Fred was never convicted. Right. And got off the first time. It just goes to prove that the cycle can be stopped. Had Fred been thrown in prison after Caroline? Maybe he could have received some help. Tara says that her childhood, like everyone else, shapes how she sees the world. Her view has made her more apprehensive, saying, quote, I don't open the front door to anybody. I don't let the children out to play. I'm probably overprotective, but I fear them being taken by someone like Dad. If the children go to a party, I go. If they go out to play, I go. I know what evil is out there. I lived with it for many years. Who can blame her, honestly? She too struggles to make sense of the past and why she was spared some of the abuse that her siblings and strangers faced. Tara told a reporter that, quote, I realize now that dad was only interested in his natural daughters. He thought they were his property. Because I wasn't his daughter, he left me alone.
0: She didn't have any of the sexual abuse? No. That doesn't even make sense, though, because he did it to other girls that they had picked up off the streets. That weren't his? Yeah.
1: But this is what Tara has come to believe in her mind that's what saved her because she has this kind of survivor guilt Mm
0: -hmm. that is interesting
1: yeah but it does show that dynamic of a child trying to make excuses for their parent
0: that's true
1: and it's clear tara clearly still finds it hard to blame her mother as well saying quote it's not like we were hospitalized she didn't break any of our bones and mom always made sure we went to the doctor's dentist and were smartly turned out she wasn't all that bad Tara still visits Rose twice a month. Really? hmm
0: Well, we can't judge.
1: No, not at all. Mm-mm. That relationship is so hard to understand from the outside and from the inside. Oh, yeah. Louise has changed her name and has stayed for the most part silent about her past and how she is coping. She maintains a strained relationship with her older siblings. Barry struggled the most with drug addiction and severe mental health issues as a result of the abuse he suffered with his parents while growing up. He tried to commit suicide in 2015. At the time, he admitted that he had taken many overdoses. He also suffered from PTSD, anxiety, depression, and chronic pain from the physical abuse. He changed his name and frequently changed his address, but could never escape. In 2020, he was found dead in a hostel in Maidstone, Kent, of an overdose. Before his death, Barry said of his parents, quote, I was happy when my dad committed suicide, and now I think they should put my mom in a room with all the parents of the people she helped murder so that they could tear her to pieces. She's a psychopath.
0: Wow. That's a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. He could never recover from what had happened to him or what he saw. That would be so hard because he was the one that saw his sister be murdered.
1: Yep. And kept it to himself for so many years trying to deal with it. It led him to drug addictions and a whole slew of mental health issues.
0: And who can blame him? No. You would want something to numb that pain.
1: To numb those memories.
0: Yeah. So his parents literally victimized him his whole entire life. Mm -hmm. That is so sad. The two
1: youngest children had their identity changed and were put into care. And that is the truly disturbing case of two narcissistic psychopaths, Fred and Rose West, dirtbags whose
0: crimes continue to haunt the world. Yeah, that's an understatement.
1: They were truly despicable dirtbags.
0: Disgusting human beings. And
1: while I found it fascinating to research this case and I just couldn't put down any of the autobiographies that the children wrote or the other books that were written about it, I am so done learning about Fred and Rose West. I am ready to learn about your next dirtbag, Christy.
0: Well... My next dirtbag is quite atrocious as well, but you're going to have to wait till next week for that one.
1: Until then. See ya. Bye. Bloopers (laughs) about how despondent their mother, their mother, their mother. I don't mother, I don't father. Forgot about that. (laughs) It's about how despondent their (laughs) mother. I thought you got it. I
0: didn't. (laughs) I was was like, "Oh, she'll say goodness. this time." Nope.
1: Rose was the. Don't (laughs) laugh, Grizzy.
0: She was the mother.
1: She was the mother. Are you done laughing now?
0: okay <laughs> sorry you're the one i keep uh, saying mother. the skewed views of Fro-
1: frod and Rose. the skewed views of heather no not heather <laughs> just
0: making crap up now what about timothy <laughs> being called dim is such a not nice thing not even a dimwit just
1: dim <laughs> instead fra- fraud rose's development was also hampered by her fart Her farts?
0: Yeah. (laughs) She eat a lot of dairy?
1: When she did enter the school, she performed pearly, pearly. You might even say she was dim? Yeah, she was dim, Christy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
0: going to start calling people dim.
1: He showed up at the trailer park and threatened bread.
0: Oh, I heard bread. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry.
1: And Carolyn once again resisted French,
0: French. Is it Fred? It's Fred. How many different names have you got?
1: sought out how uh, you're right it's getting too late now well i didn't even say anything <laughs> i'm disagreeing with, i'm calling i'm talking to you telepathically do you
0: want well, chocolate oh man it's such an insulting word it's three little letters it's like <laughs> dim